Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. So what is negativity bias? Well, it's the ingrained tendency to focus and dwell on negative experiences rather than positive ones. We feel the sting of criticism more than we feel the joy of praise and attention. Negativity is a magnet for memory formation. It is a glue for our attention. We spend longer periods of time looking at negative images and negative facial expressions than positive ones. If you show someone five images of people with negative expressions, five images of people with positive expressions, and five images of people with neutral expressions, uh, weeks later, present the test subjects with hundreds of images, they'll almost uncannily be able to pick out the five negative images they previously saw, perhaps one of the positive and none of the neutral. Given an array of good, bad, and neutral adjectives to describe a complete stranger, studies show that we give greater weight to the bad negative adjectives than the positive. We tend to believe the criticism of others is more accurate than the praise we hear about others. Bad news sells more newspapers. It gets more clicks on websites. It gets more TV views. In fact, there's even a saying, if it bleeds, it leads because nothing grabs our attention faster than negative stimuli. So why is it that we have such a predilection towards the negative, towards bad news, towards a dark take on the world? Why is it we're so quick to believe that each generation after us is getting worse. Why is it that we believe that uh, uh, bad news stories are far more reliable than positive news stories? Well, the bulk of our evolution, our ancestors, I should say, were exposed to environmental threats that by now have been largely eradicated in the sense that there were countless predators out there that could kill us. We might, at any point, while we were foraging for food, for the bulk of our evolution, we might stumble across a member of another clan who might suddenly attack us. Human lifespans were a fraction of our current lifespan. And, um, you know, there was always the possibility of something awry that would threaten our very survival. It made more sense during the course of our evolution that we would remember the one bush where we reached in and almost got bit by a snake, rather than remember all the bushes that had berries. Because in terms of survival, passing down genes, the formation of the human brain over the course of evolution, it was far more important to remember the negative, to pay attention to threats and bad news, which would then help us to survive. Now, of course, in a very, very short period of time, a matter of a few thousand years, our species has not only become dominant, but we've eradicated pretty much the bulk of the uh, threats 
that would normally, on a day-by-day basis, render our lives ever so precarious, yet we still live in the same brains because it takes evolution a hell of a lot longer to change than a few thousand years. So we're stuck in brains that believe it's far more important to remember the bad news, the negative experiences of life than it is to remember the positive. At the very core of negativity bias is the amygdala. The amygdala is a small almond shape uh, structure in the midbrain that is the one of the most important regions of the brain. It is actually the hub, not only of emotions, especially negative emotions, but also the hub of memory formation. So the amygdala shows the most significant activation when viewing unpleasant images. It shows practically no activation when it views neutral images or positive images. The same goes for regions of the posterior cingulate, which is attention, and the temporal lobe, which again, like the amygdala, is deeply involved in memory. So in other words, core regions of the brain have evolved over time to think it's far more important that we remember bad experiences, near misses, uh, stressors, and so forth, and we remember the good. And this predilection starts out very, very young in life. In fact, as the developmental psychology I remember studying back in school, um, toddlers up until the age, babies up until the age of six or seven months generally pay greater attention to positive facial expressions. But starting around six to nine months, the pattern shifts and babies become far, far more attuned to negative expressions, and it remains that way for the rest of the lifespan. It takes about a half a second for a negative experience to be hard written, written into the temporal lobe, which means stored for long-term memory. So in the blink of an eye, we can have a negative encounter someone with a negative facial expression. We can almost uh, be hit by a car. We can almost uh, we can simply uh, have a negative re- response to a situation, and that will be encoded for lasting memory formation in about a half a second. But what of the positive? Well. It takes about 24 times longer for a positive experience to be recorded. We have to actually sit with and savor a positive experience for between 12 to 15 seconds before it gets stored for long-term memory. And sadly enough, as we'll talk about later, we very often fail to savor the positive, to deep in the the positive, to linger with positive experiences, because we are unaware of how much we have to be with the positive for it to be uh, ingrained in the essentially memory formation regions of the temporal lobe. The implications of negative negativity bias are so great, it's very, very hard to to overestimate, to uh, convey just how many implications there are. So I'm just going to give a list of some, but in doing so, I'm going to obviously be leaving out so much that is worthy of attention. The Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kahneman, with Amos Tversky, Uh, had a famous theory called prospect theory, which shows that in making financial decisions, almost all investors put greater weight on avoiding losses than 
they do on focusing on gains. In fact, they found that all human beings, except for a very few, have far stronger negative reactions to losing money than they have positive feelings for gaining. So for example, if something, if we lose $20, we will feel worse about it, believe it or not, than finding $20 will make us feel good. Um, it's only the investors that manage to negate the natural negativity bias and actually see markets and all that as they really are that actually make smart investment decisions. Most of us, myself very much included, have a tendency to, uh, when it comes to even investing small amounts of money, become extremely uh, reactive to the possibility of losses. Whereas the, the very few investors who succeed are the ones who are calm and confident and override this natural tendency to be emotionally wounded by loss. And they just sit through downturns and then they wind up making an astonishing amount of money when the markets recover. In news, as I, like, as I said earlier, um, if it bleeds, it leads as a determinant factor in editorial decisions. Individuals who read news are more likely to believe that negative news is far more truthful and it seems being more valid and therefore it gets more attention and people linger on those stories and they're more likely to pass them on. In therapeutic modalities, a therapist's bias towards individuals' complexes and disorders and their symptoms. And this is at the expense of focusing on individuals' resilience and strengths. The result of negativity bias in the therapeutic uh, encounter is that it results in individuals fixating all the time on their problems rather than learning in therapy to become aware of all the strengths that allowed them to survive negative or challenging or stressful situations. Over time, individuals even begin to develop symptom fetishes where they become almost fixated on the few times they have anxiety uh, attacks or panic attacks and not be at all willing to focus on all the times and situations they didn't panic and actually got through challenging situations relatively confidently. In communication, people are far more richly descriptive of negative experiences than they are of positive experiences. In fact, there are more terms and words in the English language to indicate negative emotions than there are words to describe positive emotions. Let's look at couples relationships in the work of John Gottman and others show that there's roughly a five to one ratio where for every bad experience in a relationship, we need to have four to five times the number of positive experiences to forgive a partner and to have a positive impression of them. The same ratio is found in bids for attention. Studies show that couples that, or individuals who fail to respond to bids for attention five times more than they forget to respond to a bid to attention are seen by their partners as aloof, emotionally unavailable, and so forth. So there's, again, this, uh, we all have this natural tendency to remember focus, emphasize, and develop impressions of others based on the negative. The negative always gets five times more weight than the positive. So if uh, another study showed that if you have an individual who's donated much of their life to service or to helping people, but 
they do something, uh, I don't know, maybe they're caught shoplifting or whatever, then they'll be remembered as a criminal. Even worse, though, if we don't counter negativity bias over time, it profoundly distorts our view of others, making the task of securing the vital affiliations and bonds that we need to stay emotionally regulated all the much harder. Human beings are social species. It's far more important than food, water, than shelter, than pretty much anything for our emotional regulation that we have real, warm, emotionally intimate bonds in our life. That's how human beings regulate their emotional state. We grow up in educational and work communities with people in the same ages. So for much of our life as we mature, we are essentially assigned a lot of people our age in similar situations. For instance, when we're in school, when we're in college, when we start out working, we wind up with a lot of people who are roughly our same age or in the same position in life. And therefore, it's easy to develop friendships. But then by the time we reach our 40s and 50s, it becomes much more of a challenge to maintain secure bonds and affiliations. What happens is if we don't counteract negativity bias, all of the losses and the slight uh, setbacks in our relationships, when seen through the bias of negativity bias, will ossify into this very globalizing negative view of others. We'll start to see others as unreliable, not as kind, uh, and that will give us all the more anxiety about connecting with others. And over time, people can wind up in a very emotionally isolated place in their life if they don't overcome negativity bias. And if they don't overcome it, they can wind up very much alone because of these false perceptions that other people are untrustworthy, judgmental, and all that. All of these globalizing negative views we have on others, on other human beings, are almost entirely inevitably the result of negativity bias in that we give far too much weight to the negative experiences of our life and far too little attention to all the times when people do return calls, do ask how we're doing, do do something of kindness. We tend to write those off. Just as harmfully as the isolation that negativity bias can lead to over time is that negative thoughts, because they are midline or ventromedial, they can actually activate the HPA axis of the brain, release cortisol, the stress hormone, result in hypervigilance. And at first, the release of cortisol doesn't seem that bad it reduces inflammation, it, it changes blood pressure, it provides the body with blood glucose and stuff like that. But over time, chronic stress due to negativity bias is associated with heart disease, immune dysfunction, depression, diminished insulin, and thus diabetes. But even worse, chronic negativity bias and stress over time can lead to Alzheimer's and other immune system uh, illnesses. It creates overactive midbrains. While we may no longer need to be as on a constant high alert as our ancestors, we people can spend their entire lives due to the painful events of their life 
uh, overemphasizing, over focusing, over ruminating on the negative. So over time, we expect the worst of others. We become chronically defensive and shut down, and it becomes more and more difficult to even relax in social settings. All this said, certain individuals, and this part always uh, brings me a little bit of glee, certain individuals have greater negativity bias than others. Not all human beings are created equal, it turns out. And here's the part I love, uh, research organized and meta-analysis by uh, many clinical psychologists, as noted in the work of uh, Jonathan Haidt and others, conservatives have larger amygdalas. Politically conservative people have larger amygdalas. Progressives, and I definitely fall under that category, have larger anterior cingulate cortexes, an area that helps us detect logical errors and arguments and balance a little bit more emotional responses. People who consider themselves politically conservative are twice as likely to rate ambiguous or neutral stimuli as threatening. So clearly there's uh, some biases. Of course, one would add as well that people who grow up in insecure attachment structures are far more likely to have be susceptible to negativity bias than those who wind up uh, or grew up in secure attachment family systems. So how do we undo negativity bias? How do we even the odds so that we can not over the course of our life fall prey to the negative perceptions of others that result in us being chronically anxious, defensive, and over time even isolated? How do we protect our brains from having a, a bias in the way we perceive the world? Well, there's in generally two domains of approaching. Both use core Buddhist tools. The first is developing an awareness of how we uh, interpret experience. Thoughts are simply automatically generated content by the left hemisphere, specifically regions like Broca and Wernicke's regions, along with other areas of the temporal gyrus. But all it means is thoughts are what pop up after we have emotionally resonant experiences. And they try to represent in some kind of language what has just occurred. Generally, thoughts are inaccurate. They are best guesses. And unfortunately for us, we generally tend to generate more thoughts about negative experiences than we do about positive experiences in life. We tend to ruminate on the negative rather than ruminate on the positive. So the ability to get distance from one's thoughts after negative experiences, to undercut ruminations, by reframing experiences, by, lim by labeling, oh, that's just my brain thinking, that's not the truth. By learning to steep ourselves in the, sens the sensory impressions around us so that we don't pay attention to the negative ideations that are constantly spinning experience into uh, essentially to be filed under negative. So the more we can gain distance and quiet the tendency towards rumination that, that, that uh, is triggered by 
negative events, setbacks, disappointments, frustrations, times someone doesn't return a call, times that we want to, uh, we need someone's attention and they're unavailable and so forth, the more we can, instead of falling into the tendency of making generalizations or ruminate about all the times that we showed up for that person and they didn't show up for us, the more likely it is that we'll simply move on to another experience and not constantly ingrain into the right temporal lobe negative experiences. But even more important than that, Studies by many psychologists, William Cunningham at the University of Toronto, Alexander Todorov, I think Sandra Leah Bomorsky, if memory serves, show that happier people, are, and also I think Rick Hansen as well, um, are better at savoring the positive events in life and allowing them to lift their mood than chronically unhappy people. I'll say that again, a key differential between people that are happier in life is that they are better at savoring positive events, lingering with them for those 12 to 15 seconds than people who are chronically unhappy who tend to brush off positive events. So this is not so much about not paying attention to the negative, it's about the ability to override the tendency to just brush off positive events as if they're unimportant. This requires us to actually stop and constantly try to rebalance the brain's proclivity towards immediately remembering the negative and actually doing the work of embedding positive experiences, savoring positive experiences. It's in doing that, that we can begin the very important work of reshaping the mind from version 1.0, which was efficient for the bulk of our evolution where we were constantly under attack and therefore had to remember the negative and had to recall the drawbacks and setbacks and bad experiences and disappointments. And we can update our operating system to mind, human mind version 2.0, where we no longer live in perceptions that the world is a chronically disappointing place. Sure, people can act in screwed up ways, especially governments. Sure, there are plenty of reasons to be at any given time frustrated or even angry with the actions of others. But if we don't do the hard work of ingraining the positive, inevitably we will wind up having to bear the brunt of negativity bias and all the uh, implications that that in involves. So that's, I think, a good enough sales pitch, I hope, to encourage us to start doing a practice where we, we learn to uh, not just shrug off the positive experiences, the accomplishments, the uh, gratitude we receive from others or whatever, and we start doing the work of actually lingering on the good so that we have an, a balanced appraisal of our life. And with that, I'm now going to lead a meditation in uh, savoring, savoring the good. So I hope that that talk was of some interest. And as you move into your comfortable seated position, just reminding you that if you would like to support my work, the Venmo is Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, 
punks, P-U-N-X, N-Y-C. So thank you. And finding that, I'm going to take off my glasses, take off my hat, and finding that comfortable seated position. It'll do a nice yawn. And stretch. Rotate my head a bit and uh, open up the chest. Stimulate the vagus nerve. <coughs> nice cough. And then I'm going to just relax and settle into a comfortable position. You, if you want, can lie down. You can do this meditation relaxing on a couch. You can assume whatever posture creates the greatest degree of ease. The only effort you'll be putting in, I hope, is just that little bit of effort that keeps us from drifting off into sleep or into a kind of dissociative haze and allows us to stay present with, at first, the sensations all around us. So just start by bringing your awareness to the sounds in your direct environment. I can hear the sound of rain and there's a fan in the background. I can hear one of my cats protesting that she wants to come into this room. And don't Focus attention on any sound to the extent that you linger on it after it passes and you're not aware of the silence or a new sound that follows it. And then let's bring this awareness that's not judgmental or critical, that's not adding any commentary about sounds. Let's bring this awareness now so that it focuses on sensations in the body associated with the process of breathing. Where you place your attention is entirely up to you. For some, it might be the tip of the nose. For others, it might be the expansion and contraction of the chest cavity with the inhalation and exhalation. For some, it might be the expansion and release of the abdominal region with breathing. It could be that just the feeling of energy moving up, the body slightly lifting with the in-breath and then relaxing with the out. Try to find the most easeful place in your body to observe these sensations. There's no right or wrong place to observe yourself breathing. Contrary to the myth, the Buddha never instructed 
a specific place in the body to observe oneself breathing. So it's entirely appropriate to observe yourself breathing even in the most remote place of the body. You might even begin to discern whether you're breathing in or out while resting your attention on your eyes. or your forehead. Of course, the more obvious regions are the, the nose, the chest, and the belly. And just settling into the most comfortable observation you can. Besides knowing when you're breathing in or breathing out, just know if the out breath is very, is long or short. The longer the out breath, the more relaxed, the more conducive to ease, peace of mind. Fast breathing is associated with exertion and stress. Many Buddhist monks and nuns believe that the most conducive area of the body to observe the breath in terms of developing tranquility is to observe the abdomen, belly breathing, using each Exhalation to progressively soften the belly. And whenever you feel that the thoughts have begun to quiet a little bit. You can take your attention off the breath and just allow yourself to feel whatever you need to feel. You can just ask the question, what's it like right now? What am I feeling right now? On the other hand, if you find that your attention keeps jumping away from the present and gets lost in thoughts, no worries. Try to observe an even larger area of the body breathing make the inhalations a little bit more deep, bring a little bit more energy into the body with the inhalations. Reward yourself with a smile each time you come back from being caught up in a thought or memory or plan.
if you are ever struggling in your meditation, just stop whatever it is you're doing and just relax. Sometimes just the idea of I'm meditating can create a level of expectation that's not conducive to ease or settling the mind. If at times in your meditation you start to feel listless or bored, bring your attention to something you previously wasn't, weren't noticing. So for example, bring your attention to the sensations perhaps in your right foot, feeling the foot from the inside out. Then bring attention to the sensations in the left elbow and doing the same, feeling that area of the body, noticing the tingling, any tension, any ease or discomfort. Finding the solidity, the space 
Every time you start to feel disengaged with your practice, just bring a very loving, accepting, curious attention to a part of your body you haven't been intimately aware of recently, and just reconnect with your body and all the feelings that are occurring that generally pass beneath the level of conscious awareness. So now let's move on to the first of two exercises to help us address the tendency of negativity bias. See if you can bring to mind a disappointing event, one that maybe would normally or has already triggered a lot of rumination, a lot of thinking, interpretation, something perhaps a frustrating interaction with a friend, a partner, a family member, somebody associated with work, a neighbor, any challenging, frustrating interpersonal situation, just bring it to mind and just practice allowing the image simply to create feelings in your body, but not be turned into all the inner chatter that plays such a
harmful role. So hold the image of some frustrating event and just give space for whatever you need to feel, physical sensations in the front of your body. But each time your mind wants to turn it into words, thoughts, any interpretation, negative about yourself, negative about others. Just keep bringing your awareness back to whatever you're feeling. Breathing in a comfortable way, the more comfortable the breath, the less insistent the thoughts will be. And just emotionally process the negative events without turning disappointing experiences into harmful inner speech. And now for the second tool for undoing negativity bias, savoring the good. Bring to mind a positive event one that maybe you didn't give too much attention or a thought to. Perhaps something you recently accomplished. Try to remove any sense of, well, Why should I pay attention to that project or task that went well or that interaction that went positively? Because I guarantee you, you wouldn't overlook it if there was a negative result. Just 
think of a time you connected well with someone. And conversation where you felt both heard or that you offered something of value to another. Try to really hold it in your mind and savor this positive image. And if you'd like, put a hand on your heart center And an unforced kind of half smile, if that's available. And just allow yourself to sit with a good experience, something that perhaps exemplifies your highest sense of self, something that you did for another, a friend, or something that was difficult that you pursued and accomplished. No matter how small or seemingly inconsequential, bring the positive, hold it in mind, help yourself create a positive feeling that will be embedded in your long-term memory. So at this point, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, just allow yourself as much time as you need to slowly return awareness to a balanced attention. Aware of what you're feeling, aware of what's going on around you. (laughs) 